Welcome to Armbrand with Donnie Deutsch. I am Donnie Deutsch, and, and this is the podcast dedicated to a simple premise that everybody and everything today is a brand. Every personality, every corporation, every company, every product, every movement is a brand. Uh, we do two things on the show. We do our brands of the week where we which decide, not decide, we define what brands are up, what brands are down, uh, who's winning, who's losing, and who's setting the zeitgeist. And we do a big personal interview with a, a person about their own personal brand. And today's interview is with David Constable. David is, of course, uh, one of the stars of Billions. He plays Wags, one of the great TV characters of all time. And uh, take a listen to my interview with David Constable. I am thrilled with today's guest. David Constable uh, is a man for all seasons. Uh He's uh, a stage actor, a film actor, uh, best known for his probably his TV roles on, on, on The Wire, Breaking Bad, but his most notable role is as Wags on, uh, on the amazing show Billions. It is when I mentioned Breaking Bad, Billions, and The Wire, three of the most acclaimed shows of all time. I appreciate you being here. Thanks, David. It's my pleasure. Uh, well, you know, to be, to be with a co-star from Billions, so. Yeah, just thank saying. you, thank you. I was going to ma- focus the interview on that. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. I think we up. should. I think yeah. we should talk about your process. Yeah, I mean, just, it, like, I mean, what, is, what interests you in the script? You know, it was interesting. You know, you got Giamatti, and you got Lewis, and you got yourself, and you got Maggie Siff. You uh-huh. got you got some okay actors, but then I show up, and <laughs> yeah, uh, in, a, right? in a cameo with the first episode of season three. And mm-hmm. I don't want to say I kind of chewed up the scenes, but... This, I was going to say that you launched the season. Yes, pretty much I was going to so. say that really, you sort of lifted the whole thing to let it sort of take off. All kidding aside, for those of you who don't know, who, most of you, who, 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 any of you who don't watch Billions, and there aren't too many, they have real New York City characters on there. And I've known Cop, Brian Koppelman, the creator and showrunner for years. And I said to him once, I said, by the way, if you ever give me a cameo, I will blank you. And it was a very male endearing term to, to do. And he said, well, I don't want you to blank me, but uh, we'll see. And then he called me one day and it was so much fun. I, you know, as a guy that doesn't get to do that oh, stuff, good. it was, and Giamatti was just great. I did my scene with, with Paul Giamatti and it was just great, but I'm a huge fan of yours, a huge thank fan you. of the show. Thank you. Thank what you. I loved in my, in my research is, is that, and this kind of sums up your character is that whenever people on the street, recognize your screen it's not just hey wags it's fucking wags and that kind of just show, yeah that's always kind, fucking wags that's just kind of show, what does that say about your character i mean it's certainly you, you certainly have to teach your children what fucking means right. very very early in my life when i was like my little children and they were like daddy what's that and you're like well they they mean it in a nice way eh, it's hard to explain um it's fantastic i love it I, I love it. I love fucking wags. You know, I would tell the story very early on. I think it was in the beginning. It was the first season that just started airing. And um, I was walking to the bagel store. And, and all of a sudden, the guy, the garbage truck driver in my na- my neighborhood just stopped. And he leaned out. And he's like, hey, fucking wags. I fucking love you. <laughs> and I was like, ooh, we got a hit. We got a hit. You knew you're, you know when your local garbage man is, t- is screaming Tell fucking you. wags at you. You're just like, oh. There's a reason they scream fucking wags because that character is just kind of fuck you to everybody. It's like it just, you hit a nerve in people. people everybody, there's a piece of wags in everybody that wants to come out. Uh, <laughs> yes. It, it, as the guy who created it, well, you didn't write the character, but you did create this character. It yeah. was not on the page. Um, what is it about that character that hits that nerve that everybody wants to be kind of wags in certain ways. 
I mean, it's just that, you know, he just gets to, he just is an open spigot of rage and he just lets it out. Like, you know, we all have to sit on our rage. You just get on that subway and you're just like in a rage. So you want to let it out, but you know better and you shouldn't. So it's super fun to be able to go to work and just open the spigot. There are days when the spigot is, when you're just like, wow, this is, a, this is, I really, I thought I was full of rage, but I think I might've bled myself dry last time. But there's always just another, just another gear. You just Regen. You know, when we started the show, we did the pilot. The um, the character was completely different. He was like the strong, silent type. Yeah, like a wasp. We're supposed to be like more like wasp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we shot it. We shot it, and they looked at the the pilot, and they were like, "No, no." They cut everything I did, and they were just like, "You got to do the exact opposite." And and I knew I had worked for Brian and Dave before, um, so I knew them, and they knew that I could do it, but I never would have gotten cast in the role. If the role had been written the way it's, it is now, no one would ever have cast me. In the role. Interesting. interesting. Um, but those guys knew that I could do it and they were just like, just turn it on, just attack. And I was like, I, I just attacked. I mean, and it was, it's incredibly, I mean, there's nobody in the, nobody has more fun than me at work. Nobody that I can guarantee. There's just no way. Well, it's, I read it. I didn't know this. You went, you went to Tufts with Koppelman. You said he was kind of like a big man on campus yeah. at that time. And oh yeah, he, oh yeah, for sure. He was he had I didn't really he discovered because he had because at the time, yeah, he discovered Tracy, Tracy Chapman, Chapman because yeah. she was at Tufts too. So yeah, so that then so that everybody knew who he was because they were making the album at the time. They were making Pascar and um and ever and then they became a hit when we were all in school and so we were all like oh that guy that guy that guy um so and he said that you guys did an acting thing together. And he recognized that that Brian point, likes like, to make up lots of. He likes to make up lots he just of made, stories. So he so made that yeah, shit. Up. That's would, completely. You know, he is a, I mean, maybe he did. Maybe he died. I don't. I don't remember it. But he he remembers it very clearly. And it gets you know it gets more elaborate every time it's retold. So it's an incredibly elaborate story. Now there might we. I think we did do. I think we did something. Where did you get the acting bug from? I don't know. It was like one of those things. I, I was kind of born with it. It was one of those. Like I, I, I kind of knew from the beginning that I was always going to do it. Like I was going to be a lifer, and um, and and I was lucky enough. You know, I I went to I went to college for it, and then I was out for three years and touring around the country doing theater, and then I went back, got my graduate degree at NYU, um, and um, and then just sort of stuck with it ever since. So I've been incredibly incredibly lucky to be able to do what I wanted to do, um, and make a living doing it. Just incredibly blessed, for sure. You know, we, we, we see somebody like you who who uh, has a breakout role and has has had marvelous success on, on the various uh, platforms. But what we don't see is the ten thousand hours of auditioning. And you've you've in a bunch of interviews you've talked a lot about the pain of leaving a room yeah. in an audition, and you're you're in this fluorescent lit Ooh. little shithole. Uh, and somewhere in Manhattan, mm. and, and talk to me about what what that feels because we don't. That's the part people don't see. They see where they see David Cosmo on TV, and they, oh, look at this guy, this this big star. Yeah, yeah. They they don't they haven't seen that. Well, there's there's all sorts of coping mechanisms. Many many uh, many actors will take the side, they'll take the pages, and they'll throw them in the garbage right when they walk out the door, right. just to feel like fuck you, I'm done with this. Um, I used to do this thing where, especially if I was in Midtown and I was dressed up, because normally I would be in a suit or something, I would go uh, to Christie's and I would go to the auction and I would pretend that I could buy something at the auction <laughs> and I would wander around and just imagine myself buying this Matisse or the best days were um, the, mus the musical instrument days because everybody 
from the Philharmonic and the Opera was there and all these world-class musicians and they're all like wailing away on these Stradivariuses. And you could just sit, you could just, and nobody knows if you're rich or you're not rich. It doesn't no, matter. Yeah, yeah. You're like I'm, I'm, I'm broke and I'm just wandering around pretending because the people who are the richest are the people who are dressed the shittiest. Yes. Those yes. people come in and they drop 25, 25 million bucks on something that you look at and be like, I wouldn't spend a dime on that thing. Yeah. But yeah. they're, they're dressed like bums and then they walk out and you're just like, holy shit, I can't believe that person. So I would get all dressed up and pretend that I would do that. That was my thing. Like I would really like, I would search out the auction, especially if you were in Midtown. There was always a viewing or something you could go to. Chris, Christie's or Sotheby's, and, and it was great. And they nobody would kick you out. They couldn't. They you know they couldn't say like get out because they don't know. Yeah, they and, don't know that you're really a bum and you shouldn't be there. And you use the word delicious to help you get out of it. Uh, <laughs> Where did you hear that? I, I do my research here. You know, we don't fuck around. This is the amateur <laughs> hour. You know, we're not fucking around here. So a friend of mine, a friend. <laughs> <laughs> a friend of mine dared me, this this guy who is a the, one of the creators and showrunners of Damages. Um, his name is Glenn Kessler. And he one one year I was out in Los Angeles and I used to mostly audition for half hour comedies and could never couldn't get couldn't get a job, couldn't buy a job. It was terrible. Just and would go to one after the other after the other and I couldn't make any what was it wasn't working and there were nobody's laughing and and you'd get done and you just feel like you're just covered in your own shit. So you stand, so there's this moment, right? You finish the audition, you gotta stand up, you gotta walk all the way to the door. And there's this just crushing silence of your own failure. And, and my friend, my friend said, he said, okay, so the, what you do is that you stand up and you look at the people and you say the word delicious. And that's all you say. And then you walk out. And. <laughs> So I would not recommend this to anybody who is starting in the business because it is a certain, a sure way that you will not be invited back to do it again. Right. Um, but it was, what, well, it was incredibly, it released me in an incredible way because you're just like, because they don't know what delicious means and you're not saying like, you're not being mean to them. You're just like, this is deli delicious. It's such a, <laughs> it's a perfect word. And I did it probably like six or seven times. And then I was, I was no longer depressed and I could leave an audition. I wouldn't even have to say delicious. All I would have to do is think it. And it was delicious um because it was this it was a it was a perfect moment where you get to take back to your control. own just the yeah. smallest yeah. amount of dignity yes yeah that you've got some control some dignity left in your body and um and so it was a, my reclamation my delicious reclamation of my own dignity you know as an artist a character like wags is is what you dream of and and you you just talked about how much you love it is there a uh, a I don't want to say a downside to it. Is there a flip coin? You're James Gandolfini. You're John Hamm. You're somebody who plays these. There's such an iconic character that you're so identified with now, and that's the compliment. Is there another yeah, yeah. side to that? Yeah. Whereas, okay, I can't get cast as a as a cancer ridden, soft, empathetic uh, patient. You know, I mean, or, or or I mean, one of my one of the things one of the things that I've been incredibly lucky about uh, in in the the world is that I, I've always played. A, wide range of different kinds of people and different people. Um, you know, the guy I played on, the, the little sweet chemist that I played on. Breaking it was Bad the opposite Gale, of Walter White. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, couldn't have, and couldn't have been more different from Wags. So, so in, I have been lucky to, to have, and then before, you know, before, before I did this and before I started playing bad guys, um, I mostly played ineffectual bureaucrats. Yeah. So I have had a long, I've had a long version of playing losers and, simps and um and now i get to play nasty mean psychopaths and and attack dogs uh which i also find incredibly fun i will i will say this 
I have been shot and I've shot and it's much more fun to kill than be killed on camera. Good note to self. Okay, I like that. What's been, yeah. <laughs> what's been your what's been your favorite scene as Wags? Uh, I mean the 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 sushi scene is the was yeah. inc- was incredibly fun to shoot and it really was the first time you really get to see him go on you know to have like a, an extended aria about something that is really pa- he's really passionate about and I think like food you know because everybody in the show is passionate about food and it was really it was incredibly fun to to do and. Um, one of the, the kid who I, I was, I was yelling at had been a, one of my students and, um, this was one of his first, uh, TV gigs. And so that was also incredibly fun. And I, um, it was, it was just a, it was a great day. And it was like one of those days where you have to go and eat some of the best sushi. At, you have to eat like 15 pieces of sushi at seven in the morning. And people were like, was that hard? Were you feel sick? And I was like, no, no I, I did not. I loved, I would, they'd be like cut and you'd be like, Oh, another one just fell in. Sorry. I will tell you there was one, there was one brutal. So Brian and David hate fake eating on the show. And you'll notice this on the show. They can't stand anybody faking it. Like, like some of the greatest, like Gandolfini was the greatest eater on television ever because he chopped at his ice cream. Right. He would hit it and he wouldn't eat it. So he wouldn't eat it. The whole scene, he had these long scenes where he was hitting the ice cream. It was fantastic. It was like the greatest thing. I was like, Oh my God, I want to do that when I grow up, when I hit my ice cream. Um, so, but they, they want to see you eat. So we had this scene where Damien and I are on the penthouse. We're on, we're outside and we're trying these double, double bacon chili cheeseburgers. And I had to speak and bite and speak and bite and speak. So I had to take, and I have, of course, I've got to take giant bites, and I must have eaten sixteen of these things in one day because I had to swallow it. Sure, you couldn't yeah. spit it out. There was yeah, no there spitting. Was to go. Yeah, you yeah. had to because there you had to talk. Well, you had to talk. I mean, afterwards they're like, "What do you think?" And you're like, mm-hmm. "Ah!" And there was one moment when the guy who was making the hamburgers got behind, and because we were going so fast through them, and he had like basically burnt it, so it looked like it was. Uh, like it was cooked on the outside, but it was raw on the inside. So it was just a, the biggest bite of raw meat you've ever eaten and swallowed. So there are highs and lows with, with the eating. Yeah, there's always this homage to food, exotic food. Sure. What was the, and I didn't understand what it was, where you guys say it was, it's like a rare little bird or the, you, you put the, the towels on your the head. De what, what is, yeah, yeah. I, I felt like such a Philistine not knowing anything about that. I had never heard about it before and I have to look it up. I mean, half the stuff that those guys write, you have to look it up. When you read the script, you're like, you're like going through Google and you're right. just like, what is this a reference to? I don't know what you guys are talking about. Um, but so the ortolan was a was a bird that is raised in your vineyard, and it's a teeny little like sparrow like bird. And um, what used to happen was that the the person who was minding your vin- your your vineyard for you when, at your castle would then come and bring these birds to you. And the way that they kill the birds is that they're the birds are the birds are captured and then they're raised and then they're drowned in armagnac. So that the last thing that they do is that they have like a little bit of armagnac in their lungs and then they're, they're, you eat them whole. So you eat the whole bird. Um, and then the reason that you cover your face is that you want to hide your shame from God. You don't want God to see you doing this because it's so shameful. 
that you're eating this little teeny bird. Wow, that's interesting. You, yeah. My favorite Wags line is is nothing that we ever saw, but just said more about the character was a throwaway when you were like, oh yeah, I was banned from my kid's Little League game. I, I mean, just... <laughs> For some reason, like, there's nothing that it was a throwaway line. It was, yeah. and I don't think ever addressed again, but that just said so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's super fun when you get to read one of those things and you like, like the audience, like you were having that reaction. And I was just like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. And you never want to know. You never ask. Right. I'm just like, I don't want, I have no interest in knowing. I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly why he got thrown out and what it looked like and what it felt like it's 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 almost every week it happens when i get some and then there are certain ones there are certain lines that come back and i'm like oh my god i can't believe i said that that's disgusting my god what are my children to think of me when they, they grow up and can watch billions So I'm going to say something that I'm sure many men, many people say to you. I have a major crush on Maggie Siff. She is, sure. she is, boy, there's something about her as a, what I'll call a total woman. I, I don't know if that's a sexist thing to say, uh, but she just checks every box and she is one of the, one of the great characters of all time. What Give, give me some great Maggie Siff stories to make me fall more in love with her. Oh yeah, you would definitely you if you spend time with Maggie for sure you would you would not be disappointed. Your love is your love is rightly positioned. Yes. She is an she's an incredible person and an incredibly lovely human being. And um, we had uh, one of the one of my other most favorite scenes was with Maggie. There's a scene where Wags Wags is um, he's going through a, a crisis and we're in the we're in Central Park together and I'm telling her the story about seeing my, my previous boss who is now going through a um, a deterioration and um, a mental deterioration. And, um, and it was just, it was really early in the morning and it was just us uh, over by the lake in, um, in lower central park, like closer to the central park South. And it was really just like magic because it was just us and the rats. And there was just nobody, you know, it was like one of those mornings in the like early fall, like right now where you just, you can't believe how incredible it was. And, and, she and I have been friends. My wife and she went to grad school together, and so we've been friends. And um, it's been it's been a it's been a great blessing to to be able to work with a, a pal. And uh, she's an incredibly kind, loving person. So, all right, good. We'll we'll pass that along, yeah. please. I'm sure it'll make her day. I'm, uh, he, I will. he says he says tongue in cheek. Um, obviously, shift in the show. Damian Lewis leaves. Uh, mm-hmm. Corey Stroll. How is that? How is that feeling on the set? I mean, that's that was a major hard right turn. Uh, yeah, and and so as a, as both an actor, as both in terms of the character, but also you in a relationship with somebody. Else, how does that? How does everybody kind of get their legs after that? I mean, you know, one of it was hard for me because Damien and I are good friends, so it was really it was sad losing your friends, and it was you know it was impossible that he was also going through what he was going through losing his wife. Yeah, um, that was just a terrible, awful heinous thing to experience um so it certainly makes the loss of us being able to work together pale in comparison um and i had known Corey. i'd known Corey because uh we are also in the in the same sort of circle of friends he had also gone to nyu for grad school um so i've known him for a while and i know his wife well and um and like we all have kids that are sort of the same age so we you know 
trick or treat together right. like, in the neighborhood. And, um, so it was, so that transition was very easy. Um, you know, certainly, certainly figuring out the, the dance of, um, getting wags to, uh, to not switch his loyalties, but be able to function in, in that thing was a, was a tricky maneuver. And it was fun. It was, it was very, um, in the beginning, it was, you know, there was, there was lots of fun to be had about, you know, having them over a barrel and they couldn't fire me. And, uh, so that natural antipathy that was already there, that was already baked into the characters relationships was, was really fun to sort of lean into. Um, and then, you know, I think Wags does, he, he really likes, he likes to, he want he wants that, you know, the guy's not going to go be a greeter at Home Depot. Like, what the right. fuck's he going to do? Like, where's anybody going to tolerate that kind of behavior? Um, only in a place like this, only doing something like that. And, and also he really likes to, you know, he's got to fly high. He can't be, uh, he's, you can't ground him. Well, that you did, ground him, he's fucked. What's also fascinating about the character and, it, and no surprise it was written differently is on the one hand, your job is to be subservient to another man, yet you are so alpha at the same time. That's a tricky, tricky balance. With Damien, it was because we had had a long time to practice how to, how we got there and what it really what it looked like. Um, but one of the other one of the, the the great things, Daniel Breaker, who plays Prince, who plays Corey's number two, um, is an incredibly fun guy. So there was also a ton of um, uh, there was a, there was a lot of space in between in, the, in a way. You know what I mean? He created enough space for me to sort of move in and for us to be able to function together and really come up with a lot of the, the comedy around it. Um, because really, ultimately, it's, it's even though it is a drama, there is, you know, I am, for lack of a better term, part of the comic relief of it all. Yes. Or at least the, 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 light, the lightning of, of the world. And, you know, Daniel is a really skilled, he's a really skilled actor and a really skilled comedian. And so there was, there was a ton of play that we could, we could find together that I could then sort of slot in like I was, is he, is he, is he sort of being, you know, it, it, it basically in the beginning when we were conceiving the character, when it was growing, um, my thought was that you, you always want to keep, he want Wags wants to keep everybody who's around him or works for him or with him off balance. And the easiest way to keep somebody off balance is, is to pull them, right? As opposed to push them. If I pull you towards me, you're going to fall. You're not, you're used to me pushing against you. You could step back and you're not, I'm not going to knock you over. But if I pull you towards me, you'll be like, oh shit, Jesus Christ. So there is, there was something about that where, where you are able to sustain being, uh, to, to, to aspiring to being alpha while also maintaining your beta status. That makes sense. It makes total sense. <laughs> Shifting gears to film, uh, I'm going to guess working with Spielberg in a couple of films, uh, Lincoln and and the Post has got to be kind of a fi- highlight for your career. And you were you yeah. were pleasantly surprised at how welcoming he was. Yes, it was incredible. It was. I mean, when you work with somebody like that, and they are the most approachable person in the world, you're just. You can't, you just, you can't, you don't expect it. You just think this guy's got a billion things going on and knows everybody in the world and he's done everything there could be to be done. And, and then he just, he's like, Hey, I, I really, I like you as an actor and I've seen you on Breaking Bad and uh, I'm just so happy you're here. And you're just like, what? You, what? How do you, what? I can't believe this. Um, 
it was incredible. And, and on that one, um, the writer of the piece was Tony Kushner. And I had worked with Tony on this musical that he wrote called Carolina Change. And it was, that was in terms of like, like life, life milestones that working on that particular piece was one of the greatest things I'd ever done. And Tony is to me, an unqualified genius, just like one of the greatest writers, certainly the greatest living playwright, um, greatest American living playwright. And to, to be able to do that, to be able to work on this movie with a friend who was sitting next to Spielberg and Spielberg's talking to me, it felt like one of those things where after like two days, I felt like, you know what, it's just too, somebody else should be able to have some of this. Like, it's too much. Like I got, I got enough. Like I got two days. That's plenty. Like just get somebody else in here. Cause they should have two days of this. It's an incredible feeling. Just, you know, my first scene was with Daniel Day Lewis, which with, with, um, you know, he, I came on set and, and Steven came up to me and he was like, he was like, Hey, I'm so happy you're here. And I was like, I'm so happy to be here. And, and he said, you want to meet the president? And I said, sure. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, and they had rebuilt the interior of the white house. Yes. Like a replica of the white house and this old bowling alley factory factory in Richmond. And you go in and it was all these guys who all the people who were um, uh, all the background actors were like these, they all looked like they were from the civil war. I mean, you've just yeah. never seen people that look like this and they were all smoking real cigars and pipes. Yeah. And, and so the whole air was like, nobody smokes inside anymore. You're sure, just like, what the not. fuck's going on? Everybody's smoking in here. Um, and you walk in and then all of a sudden there he was just coming at me like a house of fire was Abraham Lincoln. And he was like, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Mr. Representative. And I was like, nice, nice to meet you. And I, I'm, I'm not lying for the next 20 minutes. I was, I, I, I was like, is he, is that <laughs> Abraham Lincoln? Right. That's is that, that could, I had to go back and like, get my phone and look at a picture of Abraham Lincoln and be like, okay, that's not Abraham Lincoln. That's but crazy. there was something, it was so, it was so crazy. And, and, when when the president was there, and it wasn't, it didn't take a second to call him the president. He was the fucking president. He was Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, it was. You're like, Mr. President, you're damn right, it's Mr. President. Right. right. Um, and the set, the set when the president was there was silent, like a library. Silent, 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 silent. Everybody on the crew was talking on headsets. On you know, you've been to sets and sets yeah. loud and everybody's shouting and there's tons of work and everybody's talking to each other. There's all this business going on. And this one was the most focused. It was so focused. It was like, it was, it was confusing. You were just like, where's the sound? Where's the noise to push against? I can't, I don't know how to do my job without the noise where you just, it was this incredibly focused. It was, it was, it was I could go on and on. And on. It was like one of the most insane, amazing experiences. And like I said, it really felt like somebody else should have it. When you're working with Spielberg, who's, who's a genius, unqualified, and, and he, is there a different beyond the way that he, you were pleasantly surprised at what an approachable guy and what a nice, kind, generous guy he was? Do you see technique where you go, ah, I get why that's that's that's? I was listening to an interview with with Jonah Hill and he was talking about Scorsese and he said that the difference what you see is he comes up to a chess match that like just his ability to problem solve in thirty seconds something that would take somebody else you know nine. What, what did you were there any Spielberg moments you go, oh, oh I guess that's why that's Steven Spielberg, you know? I mean, I asked him, I said, to, I, was, I, I asked because I was interested. I was like, Stephen, do you have like a shot list in the day? Do you figure out what you're going to do? And he's like, no, I just kind of see 
what I see what's happening in front of me and then I figure out how I'm going to shoot it. And you could, and really actually, and then I watched him do it and you really could see him being that present and that like he's paying that much attention to everything that's going on in the room about how it's going to look and what's the best way to, to shoot this particular scene. And um, it was that, that was, that was really remarkable that he is moving this giant ship and he is, it's, it's like he's improvising and, and he's having, he's having fun. He's not, you know, he's enjoying that because he's done it a thousand times. At one point he was, he got on the, he got on the camera and was like, he was like looking through the eyepiece and he was, he was like, roll it. He was like, and shoot, he was shooting me. And I was, and I was like, Hey, you can't do that. Oh, right. Yeah. You can't, you can do that. <laughs> um, and it was incredible. It was just like, he just wants to be making movies and, and you really feel that in that moment, how you're doing it right then. It isn't like, it isn't thought out. There's no committee. There's no, he's not pre-planning all of this shit. It's just, it's happening right then based on what you did right then and what he sees. And you, you feel like you're part of it on that level. That's where it isn't just his generosity of spirit as a person. It's his generosity of spirit as an, as an artist to really be, I am going to share with everybody right now how it's going to happen. And that you feel, you feel it immediately and it feels it's, it's remarkable. And, and when you get with great artists, you know, I have been really lucky to work with some incredible actors, Meryl Streep and, and, and um, Daniel Day-Lewis. I was on the post with Meryl Streep. You, right? you get, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I worked with her on the post and then I worked with her on this movie called Prime years and years prior. Um, but there, there is a, there, they, they just, they have, they're, they're all incredibly generous people. They just really are. And they are at, no, it isn't just because that they're at their ease, but then, and, and because they, they have, they have the ease of their own person to know that they are going, that it's going to be okay. But also they meet people and they don't, they don't know you or they, they do. I had known her because just by happenstance. Um, but the, you just feel from them how kind they are. Like I would do a take with her and then she'd look and she'd kind of wink at me and she'd be like, that's the one. And you're just like, no, you don't have to do that. Yeah, I, I have said this many times that I have found that the tippy tippy top, and you know whether you have met Fortune 50 CEOs or heads of state or the biggest celebrities, or, the bigger they are, for the most part, and there are exceptions to this rule. That is the case, and that's maybe part of what got yeah. them there, or their success has given them a certain uh, empathy or c- comfort in their own skin. But I, I have found it's the the folks a couple of notches down that are bigger. I had an interview show on CNBC for about five years called The Big Idea. And we would interview everybody from The Rock down to a struggling entrepreneur. And I found, for the most part, the bigger they were, the less the entourage, the less bullshit. The le- it, w- it was the reality TV stars that would, would create the yeah. problems for you. And I, it's interesting hearing you say that about Spielberg right. and, and, and Merrill. Yeah, because then you you see those people who are aspiring to get to there, and they're they, they're just aspiring to it. And the people who have gotten there, they're just like they know that they know that being generous and being kind is essential to to just being alive. Like you just got to do it. You can't you can't step on the people on the way up. You're just gonna get screwed at some point. So what's coming up for you? What's coming up? New season of uh, well, we're just about to we're just about to start. Yeah, I had my fitting, and we've got a table read next Monday, next Tuesday, next Monday, Tuesday, um, and uh, the first episode. We're gonna crank it up, cranking it up, and begin at the end of October. And, and what else? What else we got on the? What else we got on the on the plate? 
I did uh, I recently did an ep uh, did a limited series called Waco the 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 aftermath which was um, there was a there was it was the trial of the Branch Davidians after this this might it was this Michael Shannon piece that they had done years ago with John Leguizamo and um, so they're they're doing part two and I did that earlier in the spring and then um, I just finished a couple of episodes of this new Netflix show called Obliterated. Okay. I play a super bad guy. Um, making lunch for my kids. You and me both. I got to make them bre- lunch every day, breakfast in the morning. I hear their reviews of how bad my sandwich yes, making was. Yes, I got you. I got you. I want to thank you for all the entertaining nights you provided. I, I so, so enjoy your work. I just, uh, uh, you got a big fan over here and I appreciate you taking the time. I so appreciate it. Thanks, man. Hope you enjoyed today's uh, podcast with David Costable. Great interview. Fantastic guy. Uh, remember to tune in on Tuesday. We drop our uh, brands of the week uh, where we define what brands are going up, what brands are going down. And remember to listen and uh, review and subscribe anywhere you get podcasts, Spotify, Apple, anyplace else. And we'll see you next week on Arm Brand. Brand.